Hi, this is Steve Thomas, pastor of the First Baptist Church at Delray Beach. Welcome to our podcast. We study God's Word to apply it to our lives in order to make a difference in this life and in eternity. We hope you enjoy this message. We cry out, we cry out. We're in Ezra chapter 9, and at the first service I said chapter 8, and everyone was confused. Um, but it's Ezra chapter 9, and we're in a series called Be the House from Ezra and Nehemiah. And the idea is that we want to know how to be the connection between God and people. How do I get to be that? How does that work? How do I prepare for that? And it's been a great journey. And as a church, our vision is to make Jesus known. And as we consider how can I be the house, I want to know how do I, how do I let him flow through me. So today we're in Ezra chapter 9, and the title of our message today is Cleaning House. How many of you, and you hear that phrase, cleaning house, you're like, yeah, I'm all about that, that's what I love to do. Just nod your head, don't, don't be embarrassed. Don't, you don't have to say no, but it's okay. Uh, someone would say, you know, no, I don't really love that, that's not my favorite thing to do. But some of you, you keep your house so clean that if we all went over there right now, it would be perfect. We could just walk in and you would be, you'd be all, because you don't even leave your house unless it's clean. You don't feel like that's even right, because you want to come home to a clean house. Others of you, you're kind of more on the freshman boy's dorm room. Now, if you've been a freshman boy in college, or if you've had one, you know what that looks like. Just a little word to the wise. If you have a freshman boy, you drop him off at college, never go back in that room again. I picked up some boys after their freshman year going, oh my Lord, did you just buy new clothes and not wash any of these? What exactly did you do for the whole semester? It's nasty, but when you have a house that gets dirty, it becomes less useful, doesn't it? Becomes less like you would have someone over. I visited people, maybe you have too, are probably hoarders. And you've walked in and gone, well, there's furniture here, but I'm not sure there's any place to sit down. And the house becomes yet less useful. We just finished two weeks with our son and daughter-in-law and grandson staying with us. It was amazing to see our grandson every morning and to hold him, play with him, and for him, look at him as a three-month-old, and his first words were, Grandpa, unbelievable. <laughs> unbelievable. I mean, I, the kid's a genius, and... Um, but, you know, to prepare for that, not only did, did we clean the house, but Julie went and she got everything needed to get ready for this little guy and for him to have what he needed. We have all kinds of paraphernalia at our house right now uh, for babies. And it was ready to be useful for this child to be cared for, nourished, and to grow and have everything that his parents needed. That's what a clean, prepared house looks like. Same thing is true spiritually. If our house isn't clean and ready for God to use us, He doesn't use us. And we miss out on that joy of Him shining through us, of connecting people, of just having people be able to know Jesus as a result of our life and in our, our spiritual house. And we miss out on what He might do. Well, this morning we look at Ezra chapter 9 as 
Worship has been reestablished for the people. Remember, they were in exile, and God brought them back, and he moved in the heart of kings and his people, and he reestablishes worship in Jerusalem and in the temple. And in that, some things come to light that hadn't been seen before. Look with me, Ezra chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. The Word of God says this, After these things had been done, the officials approached me and said, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the people of the lands with their abominations, from the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands. And in this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and chief men has been foremost. Boy, isn't it true, when you're away from worship, it's easy for the world's thinking to seep into your lives and the world's ways to seep into your lives. When we were closed and had to do everything online last year, it was tough to not gather. It was tough to not be with God's people. I know some of you online today are looking forward to the day when you can gather with us, and we look forward to that day. But when there is no worship, when we don't gather, when we don't hear the Word of God preached, when we don't worship Jesus, we can start to look like the world. And that's what had happened. They had they had begun to intermarry with the, the people around them and the officials, who were probably more administrative than they were priests, but probably included some priests. And they came to Ezra and they said, Ezra, look, some things aren't right. The people have begun to intermarry. They, they've not separated themselves. They've not maintained their distinction. They've, they've, they've begun to intermarry with the people around them. And, oh, We've, some of us, have actually let out in that. What a moment. Because it says in verse 2 that the officials were the ones that led him in this. So these are probably some of the same people who had gone out and intermarried with the people around them. They were actually coming to Ezra saying this is a problem. Confession. It's a powerful, powerful moment. And they say that they have not separated themselves. You see, God's people have got to be a distinctive people. In order for them to bless the nation, they've got to be a distinctive people who live to honor Him. And God's people had gotten off track and they'd become intermixed with the people around them. They had not separated themselves. They had intermarried and it was called faithlessness in Ezra. Now, you maybe go, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Back up, time out, time out. What is the big deal about intermarriage? Why was it so important for them? Well, remember, God's people were the seed of Abraham. God's people were the descendants of Abraham, and they were supposed to be a very distinctive people and only intermarry among the people of the Israel of Abraham's line. In order that they would not get distracted and get deluded and take on the ways, the beliefs, and the practices of the people around them. So what's the problem with the people around them? Well, the people around them had been, were peoples that had been resettled from the known world around the Mediterranean at that time and beyond, and these people had beliefs of all kinds, but not worshiping Yahweh, 
not worshiping the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They had all these other belief systems. And you say, wait a minute, I thought that God's people were supposed to mix with people. You said, go ye therefore. Yes, yes, but God's people can't bless the nations when they quit being God's people. When they quit living the way that God demands that we live, God's standard. They have to be a distinctive people or they really don't think to share. So they said, well, the people began to intermarry. And I know what you're thinking. You've seen Romeo and Juliet. You've seen Love Story. You've seen, uh, what's the other one? The one with the, with the, the, the two gangs. Um, West Side Story. Yeah, so thank you. Um, I haven't seen that one, but it's the same story, right? It's two star-crossed lovers. Oh, isn't it romantic? Oh, you know, their parents are feuding. They don't like each other. They're from different gangs. And the, the two star, they get together, and it's so romantic, and it's so beautiful, and they both die in the end, and it's so dumb. Sorry, it was a spoiler. I should have given him a spoiler alert. That's, that's how it all ends. Um, and they're just, they just want to be together. Their families are from different religions. No, that's not it at all. Listen, marriage in those days was much more of a business contract than it was romance. So understand what they're doing is they're saying they would, they would form a marriage in order for there to be an alliance between families often, especially if it was outside of Israel. This was a business deal. This is, I'm gonna, we're going to have our kids marry so that we can share in our purposes and we can help each other. And in doing so, they would become like them and dishonor their God. Because in doing so, they were saying to God, what your way, the way that you've given us to live is not what we're going to stick with. We're going to embrace everyone around us. You see, intermarriage for us, you may say, well, Steve, what does that mean to us? Because we're not Israel, right? No, we're not. We're not. God's people have been grafted into, I mean, as you're a follower of Jesus, you've been grafted into the people of God, but you're not the nation Israel. America is not Israel. So how does that affect us? Let me say this, first of all. Intermarriage is not a racial issue, okay? It's not an issue of, hey, you married someone outside of your race. It has really nothing to do with that. It's a faith and worship issue. See, when you marry someone or when you connect with outside culture and you abandon who you are, you abandon God's people, you take on their beliefs. That's what he's talking about. See, what is your faith? So many times you'll say, well, you know, if I, if I marry someone who's not a believer, is that what he's talking about? Yes, but it's not the only thing he's talking about. But Paul says if you find yourself married to an unbeliever and they choose to stay, you should stay with them and help them follow Jesus, right? But it's more than that. It's much more than that. See, so many times I see people who follow Jesus begin to take in and buy into the world religion the worldview of the culture around them. You say, well, what do you mean? Well, there's really only two choices of faith. You go, no, Steve, there's four world religions. Let me just tell you, there's only two, really. Following Jesus and depending on yourself. That's the only two options. You can name any other world, any other world religion. It's really all about, I can be good enough, I can earn it, I can meet the standard, and I can earn my way either to heaven or the next life or whatever you call that, and I'm going to depend on myself. The question is, am I guilty or am I innocent? Right? 
Mark Sayers, in his excellent book, Disappearing Church, gives a description of the latest strain or the latest uh, example of this. Um, he's talking about what he calls the third culture, which is the culture that goes beyond where Scripture really was kind of believed to be truth. We're now in a place where Scripture is not believed to be truth by most people. And we've entered an area of Gnosticism, which was a first and second century invention. And he says this in his book. I think it's really helpful to understand the people around us. He says this, This new religion could be detected in an increasing obsession with the self. Sound familiar? With personal development and the preference of spirituality over religion. In other words, I, I just, I'm a spiritual person. And with therapy over communion with the transcendent God. I just have to stop there for a moment. There's no substitute for communion with God. Not a therapist, not a self-help book, not a yoga class, not some friends. There is no substitute for coming into contact, coming into the presence of God. He says it was the elevation of self above God. It's always the elevation of self above God. Always. He says, although this religion seemed new, Martin Buber noted, Buber noted that it was the return of an older strain of thought. It was the return of Gnosticism, the gospel of self. He says, the only authority left then in the third culture is the authority of the self. I'm the one who chooses. I'm the one who decides. I get to pick how I live. I get to pick it's what comes out of me is what I'm going to do. It's what I find within myself. The truth is within you. No, it isn't. It's not. If we're going to worship self, though everything keeps changing. We are not God. We're created beings. And this manifests itself in so many different ways. You see it all the time. One of the ways that, that it happens is that people say, you know what, I'm mad at God and I'm judging Him for what He did in my life. He allowed this to happen and I can never get over the fact that He allowed my loved one to die or my loved one to suffer or He allowed COVID to happen or He allowed this to happen in my life and we get mad at God and we judge God and people say all the time, you can be mad at God because He can handle it. Listen, do you want to be mad at the one God who gave His Son who was absolutely innocent for your life to spend eternity with Him? Do you have a place to do that? Some of you have heard a lot. I know your stories. It's a lot of hurt. Nothing hurts like a father who gave his only son for someone who was rebellious against him at the time. Oh yeah, God can handle your anger. I just don't think you want him to. You know? I don't really think that's what you want to say to a holy and a sovereign God. Another way that people, this, this whole authoritative self, this worship of self manifests itself is saying, you know what, the, the Bible isn't really God's word. Because we've come so far, we've, we've, we've progressed, we've evolved, we're, we're so much better than we used to be, and we can handle different expressions of sexuality. And, and really what the Bible says is just so old, and, listen, is it the word or is it not? Is it not? We accept what the world puts forth as Morality, 
sexual orientation, sexual choice. Do I believe what the Bible says is true? That God has built a way for me to live that's the very best way. It's the way for me to display Him to the world. To joyfully live in the reality of who He is. Another way that when self is king, we say to ourselves, well, I deserve, right? I deserve to have this wealth, or I deserve to have this experience, or I deserve to have this pleasure, or I really live and my joy comes from the acceptance of others in my culture. That's an abandoning of Jesus as God, and it's an embrace of myself as God. I worship, people worship tech giants like Jobs and Musk and, and social media and every other tech thing that comes out rather than Jesus Christ and bringing ourselves into submission to him and the joy of knowing that I'm forgiven. No, it's not just marrying the wrong person or marrying a person who's far from God. It's, it's embracing the world view that's all around you. If you're not a follower of Jesus, this is your worldview. It's the only other one out there. So what do we do? Well, grief is the proper response to faithlessness. Grief. Look at Ezra chapter 9, verse 3. It says this. Ezra says, as soon as I heard this, I tore my garments and my cloak, and I pulled hair from my head and my beard, and I sat appalled. You ever been appalled? You ever really grieved in those days to tear your, your, out, your inner cloak and your outer cloak? That would be like tearing all of your clothes and just kind of ripping it. It was very costly. It was very demonstrative. People knew that you were grieving. It was a powerful symbol and a way of expressing your grief. Think of the, the, the greatest way you could possibly express your grief today. You know, maybe, you're, maybe you go for a run or maybe you scream or maybe you sit alone or maybe you cry out. How do you grieve? See, when you recognize sin, grief is the response. It's like living in someone's house, borrowing it, and they come to visit, and you kind of messed it up. Only much, much worse. He grieves. He brings pain into his life by pulling hair out of his head. That's how sad and upset he is. He is appalled at what has happened. And it says that then all who tremble at the words of God of Israel, because of the faithlessness of the returned exiles, they gathered around me while I sat appalled into the evening service. Even sacrifice. This, this was not just an instantaneous thing. This was an all-day thing. He processes all day as he sits in the reality of what has happened. And people began to gather around him and join him in his grief. In verse 5, it says, At the evening sacrifice, I arose from my fasting in my garment, with my garment and cloak torn, and I, I fell upon my knees, and I spread out my hands to the Lord my God. processes all day before he even prays it's like he had to take time to get his head around what was happening what did it actually mean how would he even go before the lord he doesn't just run into the presence of the lord and start babbling he says i I, i've got to think about this i've got to sit on this i've got to let this get into my head and understand what's really happened before god so that when i go before the lord i go before him appropriately understanding really what's happened Grief is a proper response to unfaithfulness. Ezra 9, 6 says this, and this is the beginning of his prayer. Listen to his heart. 
says, oh my God, I, I'm ashamed and blush to lift my face to you. My God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. From the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt. And for our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been given into the hand of the kings of the land, to the sword, to captivity, to plundering, and to utter shame as it is today. What happens? Ezra spends all day in grief. And it's interesting what he doesn't do, right? He doesn't go, ah, it's the fault of the culture. It's the fault of everything around us. It's all those people. It's, it's that suit's problem. It's, all, it's these people. They're so wrong. They're so evil. God, he doesn't do any of that. Notice what he says. I am ashamed. I am ashamed and blush to lift up my face to you, my God. And get this, for our iniquities. Ezra's saying, I am ashamed, not for them. I'm ashamed because I am them. You know, in our world today, the worst thing you can ever do to someone is shame them, right? That's a nasty, nasty thing to do. People say, oh, don't shame me. Don't try to shame me. Don't bring me this shame into my life. That's a big, big deal. No one joins someone else's shame. Ezra does the unthinkable. Not only joins it, he owns it. My shame. I'm embarrassed. I blush even to lift up my face to you. I'm embarrassed before you, Lord. It's a deal breaker for most people in our culture today. I'm not going to be embarrassed. I'm not going to take on shame. I hate that feeling. I'm never going to get there. I think that's why a lot of people go around unforgiven right now. There is no belief or owning sin and unfaithfulness. It's all about, hey, maybe just a quick prayer. God, just forgive me for that. And we just go on our way. No, what does Ezra? He says, I'm ashamed. God, I want to feel this. I want to own it. I love his joining them and saying, if you've sinned, I've sinned because we're connected. Do you know that as a church, that's true? If you've sinned, I've sinned. We need to own our walk with the Lord. See, we don't worship the individual. We are a part of a body here. And how our lives are lived impact us all. And we're unfaithful when we buy into the culture around us rather than buy into Jesus. When we get our joy from something other than the joy of the Lord because I'm forgiven and I didn't deserve it. We all suffer and we're all guilty. We come before the Lord in shame. Can you own the shame of sin? Or you just think that's unreasonable? There's two choices. You can follow Jesus or you can make the individual yourself God. Verse 8, Ezra continues, But now for a brief moment, favor has been shown by the Lord our God to leave us a remnant and to give us a secure hold within this holy place that our God may brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our slavery, for we are slaves. Yet our God has not forsaken us in our slavery, but has extended to us the steadfast love before the king of Persia to grant us some reviving, to set up the house of our God, to repair its ruins, and to give us protection in Jerusalem and Judea. He goes back and he says, God, we don't deserve this at all. 
You rescued us from exile. You moved miraculously in the heart of the kings and the heart of your people to bring us back to this place and to revive us. Even though we're not the dominant culture anymore, we're slaves. We belong to Persia. We belong to Babylon. Even though we're not in charge, God, you've given us some reviving. You've touched us and said, hey, I I want you to represent me. I want you to be my people. I want you to show my glory. I want to give you that even though you don't deserve it at all. As we're saying, listen, you've given us this and we've squandered it away. We're risking losing it all. See, God has given us an amazing opportunity we in no way deserve. We in no way deserve to represent him. We as a church, we don't deserve this. We don't deserve to get to have Jesus in our lives, to have the Holy Spirit living through us, to know the joy of the Lord. But grace, grace that God has given us to do this should always result in wanting to live to honor Him, right? Verse 10, he says, But now, O Lord, what shall we say after this? And always remember, when you pray, you need to be specific. Watch what Ezra does. He says this, For we have forsaken your commandments, which you commanded by your servants, the prophets, saying, The land that you are entering to take possession of is a land impure with the impurity of the peoples of the land, with their abomination, and have filled it from end to end with their uncleanness. Therefore, do not give your daughters to their sons, neither take their daughters for your sons, and never seek their peace or prosperity, that you may be strong and eat the good of the land, and leave it for an inheritance to your children for." Ever. Ezra goes right down the line. This is what we have done. And you may say, wait a minute, Steve, I remember, remember Jeremiah 29, where he says, Hey, when you're in exile, don't forget to seek the welfare of the city and marry your daughters and sons off. And what he means by that is you had to marry your daughters and sons off within the community of believers so that you can be a distinct people even in exile. Ezra says, These are our sins. He's very specific. This is, the, this is the commandment that you gave us. This is how we violated it. When you pray, be specific. General repentance is of little or no value. Have you ever prayed like this? God, forgive me of all the stuff I did yesterday. I forgot what it was, but whatever it was, I'm sorry for it, and please forgive me. Amen. And you get up, and nothing's really changed, has it? You say, well, God knows what I've done. He knows where I've sinned. He knows it all. I just got to acknowledge that he knows it all. But he always wants to know, do you know? Do you know what has has dishonored him? Do you know what has gotten in the way of you been able to display and represent Jesus Christ? Do you know? See, sadly, we don't often. Get specific. Get specific before the Lord, saying, God, this is what you said. This is where my life doesn't line up. Ezra gets very specific. Verse 13. And after that, and after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, seeing that you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserve and have given us such, as, such a remnant as this. Notice he says, God, I, you, were, you were gracious to us. We deserve much worse. Verse 14. Shall we break our command, your commandments again and intermarry with the people who practice these abominations? Would you not be angry with us until you consumed us so that there should be no remnant or any to escape? 
O Lord, the God of Israel, you are just. For we are left a remnant that has escaped as it is today. Behold, we are before you in guilt, for none can stand before you because of this. This is what he's saying. God, you have every right to wipe us out. God, you have every right to wipe us off the face of the earth. This is so countercultural because the rest of our culture says, oh God, we deserve so much more. We deserve this. We deserve that. God, you haven't done enough. For wait, wait a minute. We don't have any right to expect anything from God. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We all deserve death. Is every right to wipe us out. But Ezra says, listen, God, I, I trust you. None can stand before you, but you are just. We recognize your right to do exactly what you want to do and need to do in our lives. We put ourselves before you and we recognize our sins. And in a sense, he's saying, I, we ask you for forgiveness, but we understand if punishment is what we need. What a powerful, powerful moment. Let me ask you, are you there? Are you there? As we've talked today, has God begun to reveal something in your life and says, listen, you've bought into something else. You've taken into yourself the religious views, the, the faith views, the spiritual views of the world. You've lost your spiritual identity because you've bought into the world's belief about truth, the world's belief about me. Has he started to get to you a little bit? When you think of your house, does Jesus own your house? Does Jesus own your life? And it's, is it something that it's available for him to use for his glory? To invite people into his presence through you? Or is it really, really dirty? Does Jesus own your house? And does your house need to be cleaned? Jesus was coming over today and was going to examine your life and look inside to see, is it a life that's committed to him? Not a perfect life, but a repentant life. A life that desired to please him, what would it be like? Would it be filled with a heart that says, God, I have the right to judge you? Or I have the right to choose my own truth or my own morality? Or, God, I'm going to find all my joy somewhere else. What is happening in your heart today? Do you ever sit appalled? Do you ever have a sense of embarrassment before him? This morning, we're going to take a few minutes to process before the Lord. And I want to ask, as we go into a time of prayer, if you're able and you'd like to, I'd love for you to take a knee and make that place where you're at an altar. Normally, we'd come to the altar, but in order to protect everyone, it might just be you'd like to kneel right where you are. And come before the Lord and say, God, I, there's stuff in my life that is full of the world rather than full of you. God, I, I need for you to forgive me. I need to recognize that I, I'm embarrassed at how I've lived. It doesn't represent you. But I want you to clean me out. Let's do that now. Would you bow with me?
Thanks for joining us today. If you'd like to support this ministry, go to our website at fbcdelray.com. Also, click the share button so you can share this message with a friend or someone in need as we seek to know Jesus, to know others, and to make him known. We cry out, we cry out.